This is Restless. Welcome back to Restless, a postmortem on the young, restless, and reformed, and whatever else we're doing these days. We are going back to a thing Pastor Michael and I greatly enjoy, greatly appreciate, and if we are going to let downloads tell us, you don't. Here we are. We are continuing to walk through the Apostles' Creed. We are in our fourth episode of doing this. We This is not only four. <laughs> is this really only four? Because we have done belief, what belief is, belief in God, the Father Almighty and creator of heaven and earth. I think we're in four. We haven't done them for a while. Yeah, it's been a lot. That's why I'm thinking this, because I'm like, man, we started this like six months ago. <laughs> Well, Pastor Michael, do you know why you really want to get on this one right now? Why is that? Because that means next month during Christmas, you can make the Covenanters rage when we do our episode that will be titled "I Believe in Christmas." So, nice. so you'll be you'll be so happy as I set up that softball for you next month. So um, fun. So, just to make help people, Pastor Michael, remind people just very briefly what is the importance of the Apostles' Creed. Why do why is this um, matter as a thing for us to walk through thinking through our beliefs as Christians via? Yeah, it's important because it is a a a faithful summation of the central teachings of Scripture, and and um, it's something that has been recognized as such for the vast majority of the history of the church. Um, not the whole history. And, you know, we've talked about that in the past. And so you can go back to earlier episodes to find out about it, the history of the creed. Um, but it's really easy to think within um, certain sectors of evangelicalism. Oh, what good is a creed? I've got the Bible. Um, this like I don't need that. But the reality is that the way that we learn and understand and grow um, is usually through being given categories of thought in which to to understand things and it's only then after we have definitions after we have words to describe things that we can actually see them just as an analogy uh, there's a really interesting episode a long time ago of radio lab if anybody uh, i don't know if is that show still going i don't know great question it was a great show back in the early podcasting days yeah great show um a lot of cool stuff that they put out. It's been many years since I've listened to this, but they had a really interesting episode about color mm. and about basically the theory that people couldn't see colors. Oh yeah. Until yeah, I... they named them until they had a name for it. And I like, maybe not exactly, but um, you know, they basically said, look, if you look through ancient documents and, and uh, writings, there's a lot of colors that we would expect to show up that don't at all. And it seems like in part because like people with when you don't have the category of a word to describe something, you're going to describe it a different way. So, for instance, like that might sound crazy, but um, if you think about even, you know, if I say something is blue, um, that can mean a lot of different things. I can say a lot of things are blue. I can say the sky is blue. I can say the the ocean is blue. Right. I can say uh, my wife's eyes are blue and all three of those are actually very different colors. Mm. And somebody that knows their colors better than me 
is going to start saying things like, oh, that's Robin's egg blue. Mm. Oh, that one there, that's that's aquamarine, which isn't really blue. It's more green. And that's, and like, they will uh, be able to, you know, and be able to differentiate things better as they name them, as they give them categories in which they can be understood. The same thing is true, actually, in our reading of scripture. Um, not to say that you can't learn something in reading scripture, because it is words, right? I mean, it is it 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 does come with um, uh, definition uh, because it is God's commu- true communication, not mm-hmm. not something that can't be understood. Uh, but the way that we work as humans is that we understand things more clearly and better when we start with the categories of thought in which to put things. Um, and from the earliest days of the church. That's what the Apostles' Creed is, right? It is a faithful uh, uh, distillation of the the central teachings of Scripture, the central things that you need to believe to be a Christian. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I I think, and especially that intro tonight is very helpful as we come to the first line of the Creed regarding Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, And so I think that you... You've so hit it. And actually, I, I I think that theory even, not that we should spend any more time on the illustration. This is the wrong move, right? But <laughs> um, but I've heard that even like the the things we have is even written about people's experience before color television, that there's a sense, especially when TV was black and white, that people probably experienced the world um, in that way, yeah. uh, which is very strange. Again, it's one of those things that like, we can't imagine. But again, yes, this is why. And and one of the beautiful accomplishments of the Apostles Creed, right, is not that, again, it, that it somehow landed in history and had all authority. But that it was such a cl- it was such clarifying language. It was such a distillation of what the Bible said. Everyone, virtually every christian church on earth recognize this is what the bible says right that's what's a you know that is what's impressive you know about it um so tonight that leads us to the line of the apostles creed and i am going to lean hopefully on pastor michael who fairly recently preached through this um and i'm sure he did more than one pastor michael you'll have to tell us how many sermons you did on this line after i read it tonight we will be covering and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. How many sermons did you choose to do that line in one sermon or more than one? No, I, so I can't remember if I did two or three. Okay. I think I did three. I actually think that I did three sermons on this. Now, now I'm going to give the brief reason why Pastor Michael was able to do three and then we will walk. I'm through. thinking maybe two. I'm now that I'm thinking about it, but I wanted to do three, but it just it was too much. <laughs> but, but even a Presbyterian <laughs> pastor limits how much he punishes his people for making <laughs> him their pastor. Right. But but of course a three part sermon on this would be good because this um this line identifies what I might call the three core um, identities that make Jesus our savior, Jesus, right? The Jesus we love, the Jesus we talk about, who he is, right? That this teaches us that essential Christology covers three things. Yeah. Christ, his only son, and our Lord. That these three things 
are um are the bedrock of identifying Jesus from other Christs, right? Paul is worried that you might be hearing of another Jesus or another gospel. And if you hear about a Jesus that lacks or is distorted in the terms of Christ, his only son and our Lord. Now, even his name, of course, has significance um, as we as we um, as we may talk about. But these are the three areas that I at least want to focus on. So, Pastor Michael, um, do you want to do you want to mention the significance of of our Lord's? our Lord's given name, right? The name given by his mother, the name instructed by an angel, or do we want to move on to what it means that he is the Christ? Yeah, let's start with, let's start with Jesus um, because, um, because I do think it's important and people don't always realize it or, or recognize it. Now, um, obviously the angel says, uh, says to Joseph and Mary, right? That he is to be named Jesus uh, because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. Yes. Um, and so so that's centrally important. Um, and it helps, um, you know, Matt and I, this this isn't going to be on here for everybody to hear. But Matt, and I just finished up a conversation about um, whether or not it's good if you preach the whole of the Bible whenever you are, uh, you know, uh, preaching any given text. Um, and there are some pitfalls with that. Uh, but we did agree that it's super important to get the full biblical context of those things that you're reading about. Um, and that includes the name Jesus. And, and the name Jesus um, is the, the way that you would um, write a well-known Hebrew name in the Greek. Uh, and this is the name Joshua, Yeshua, right? If you ever hear usually kind of funky charismatic people, say that they pray to Yeshua. <laughs> what they're trying to do is, is uh, you know, speak Jesus just in the Hebrew, <laughs> right? Uh, which is Joshua. Uh, and when you think about conceptually the fact that Jesus is named Joshua, what is that telling you? Well, who is Joshua? Joshua was the one that brought the people into the promised land that brought the people across the Jordan, gave them the promised land, helped to clear the promised land. He was the one that led Israel into the, the uh, realization of the promises of God. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. And, and so this is why he's given that name. He came to save the people from their sins. Um, that's, that's what he came to do. Yeah. Now, I think it is fascinating when people... Uh, demand to call him Yeshua. It is a fascinating move because it's like they are now holier than the New Testament that never once uses a Hebrew name. I know. I know. Lord, they always, you know, they always use the name. Um, <laughs> right. They're they are better than the Hebrew apostles <laughs> who didn't do that. <laughs> who we don't know what they said in their everyday life, but <laughs> in their inspired writings referred to them by a Hebrew name. Yes. Yeah. So, and I do think it's even pointing out again, it's important to point out, right? Like Joshua, he's our champion. And Matthew one twenty one points out what kind of champion he will be, right? He yes. will save us from our sins. Now, pastor Michael, when we get to this term, Jesus, Jesus is the Christ. What do we mean that Jesus is, is the Christ. And I will probably 
if I if I need to it just and I'll point this out in case I don't come back to it. Um, this line and all the lines of the Apostles Creed are walked through with very approachable language in the Heidelberg Catechism. Yeah. Um, and so there are obviously lots of good resources on the creeds, um, but the Heidelberg Catechism uses very um, approachable language. So I'll read a few of their answers at some point just to sh- to demonstrate that. But Pastor Michael, when we talk about Jesus being the Christ, what does that mean? Yeah, so Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right. Um, this is not uh, part of his name. It is a title. Um, Jesus Christ means Jesus Messiah or Jesus anointed one. Um, This is what the the Messiah was. Um, As promised throughout the Old Testament, uh, there was coming one who would save Israel, who was the anointed one of God. Uh, In fact, when uh, Jesus begins his ministry, um, we get this in the Gospel of Luke. uh, When Jesus begins his ministry, he begins uh, in Nazareth by uh, preaching about um, being the Messiah. Um, he, he starts by saying that he's the Messiah. So he's he is uh, baptized by John. He then immediately is, is uh, taken out into the wilderness for 40 days. Uh, when he returns uh, and begins his ministry, we're told that he came to Nazareth. This is in Luke chapter four, uh, which is where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he he uh, goes to the synagogue, he unrolls the scroll, and he reads it, and he reads from Isaiah, where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to be, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set a, at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. I'm the one that the spirit of God has anointed for this purpose uh, of saving this people. Um, And so, and there's a lot of other ways we could see that and, and show it. Uh, But this, I mean, this is everywhere in the old Testament. I mean, this is one of those threads that um, is taken up throughout um, that there is one coming, this anointed one that will come, uh, this Messiah that will come in order to save the people. And so Jesus is that Messiah. He's that Christ. Yes. Yeah, I think that this is, there's a few, I mean, there's so many important threads on this, as Pastor Michael said. Um, maybe the biggest one I want to yank on is Jesus is the Savior of Israel. There's a very particular thing Right. This again, this what this helps us do is it helps us shape out what does it mean that Jesus saves? Jesus is a savior. Because again, I think a lot of times where we when that becomes a very abstract thing, you find people backfilling that with whatever they want to put into it. There was a very specific kind of expectation and a very specific kind of anointing that um, Jesus had as Israel's savior as Israel's Messiah. Now, um, this is actually uh, the thing, and I will read the Heidelberg Catechism. This is what it tries to helpfully point out. It tries to helpfully point out that in large part, we can refer to the messianic office 
as three offices that Jesus fulfills. Yes. Offices that if you are into Reformed theology, you're familiar with, you've heard us talk about them. But it's when we, especially where do we get these? If we look at the Old Testament, who does it say there is actually a lot of times in the Hebrew where the term Mashiach, yes. someone is anointed, there are actually a number of different people anointed. there, And it's sometimes a bit scandalous um, to know that there were actually people before Jesus called the Messiah. Yeah. That this is a, again, it's it's sometimes uncomfortable because it is the kind of thing that um, Jewish anti-Christian apologists will bring up. Mm. But the Bible, again, is much more interesting and deeper than it is. But we do also get a very clear sense, in fact, including in all of these offices, that there was a kind of Messiah coming beyond any yes. any of those who'd fulfill these things. So let me read these three and we can point out either how the how these were looked forward to or any reflection. So why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel of God's will concerning our deliverance. Our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the father and our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit, who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. Right? So this, that we can pull, there's more, but on a fundamental level, we can say the, that the many messianic prophecies had a sense where it was looking for a prophet, it was looking for a priest, and it was looking for a king. Hmm. We look at who was anointed, right? We can think about the prophet. I will raise up one like Moses. There was yes. someone who's a prophet that was coming um, that would surpass Moses, right? The Davidic promise of a king, right? If you read the Psalms, if you read the Davidic king having dominion over all nations, I don't care how great you think the Davidic kingdom was. No Davidic king ever, ever met that. Right. Um, and of course, we have in even in a priest, right? And Hebrews over and over looks in. We know that their priesthood couldn't have been perfect because they had to keep going. Yes. They had to keep offering. Right. So we have a sense where, yes, all true kings, true prophets, true priests were anointed by God mm -hmm. to fulfill their ministry. But they weren't fulfilled. There was not a a finality to anything they did. Yeah. And that's what we get with the Messiah, the Christ Jesus. Yeah. And that shouldn't, by the way, that shouldn't, yeah, it shouldn't bother anybody because, I mean, New Testament uh, believers anyway, because we, I mean, we use this language all the time. We just don't realize it. Mm -hmm. um, just as there is one Christ, um, so in him, there are many Christians, right? right? Like that's, um, we we are anointed in him. In him. We are, we are um, anointed ones and we are you know um, in that sense um, called to to uh, what it looks like to in him be prophets priests and kings too yes it's like pastor michael is a reformed theologian because the next question of the heidelberg question is but then why are you called christian <laughs> it's so good because by faith i am a member of christ so i share in his anointing i am anointed to confess his name to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks and to strive with a free conscious conscience against the sin and devil in this life yeah. and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. 
right? And so they even highlight the ways we share in his uh, being a prophet, priest, and king. So Pastor Michael, let's move on to Jesus Christ, the only begotten son. So Pastor Michael, this, if, if there is a question of, right, if Messiah answered the question, what is Jesus's vocation, right? What is he, what did he come to do? This, if we can say it, this answer answers fundamentally who he is, mm. who he is before he was anointed. Yeah. And in his uh, ministry as a man, who, right. who he was, who he is now in heaven, who he will be. Um, so pastor Michael, why is this, uh, Perhaps why is this the the identifier of just the the most you know fundamental truth about who Jesus is? Yeah, because it does it reveals his divinity, right? Mm -hmm. So this is speaking of Christ's divinity that he is the only begotten Son of God. He is he is eternal God, the Son. Uh, you know, and this comes out so many places. Um, throughout scripture, you see it, um, very in, you know, in a very direct and, and, um, especially explicit way in the gospel of John over and over, um, that he is, you know, for instance, um, the only begotten son, but, um, I'm thinking here, particularly of in Jesus high priestly prayer, when Jesus prays to the father. And by the way, you know, how do we know that God is a father? How do we know he is father? What, you know, we talked about this when we talked about God, the father. Um, it is most clearly revealed to us who God is in the coming of Christ, right? In the coming of the eternal son of God who took on flesh because he revealed to us the father. Uh, he revealed to us uh, the Godhead. Uh, but anyway, so in, in John 17, his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, father, the hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Right? Like that is what it means in part that he is the only begotten son, right? That he is, the, the son of God. We're not talking about him being a son in, in the way that we are. Um, we are sons of God because there is God, the son. Um, and so that's, what's being described here uh, by, by the creed uh, that he is uh, the, the one uh, who is God himself, God, the son, the second person of the Trinity. Yeah. So pastor Michael, tell me why, uh, why is this actually a good way to speak about his deity? Doesn't actually calling him the son, doesn't that, um, you know, there's obviously a plenty of ways people take that, but doesn't that even sound like, even if you're going to say that's deity, doesn't that sound like less, like a lesser deity, right? If we've been confessing the father creator of the heavens and earth and his son, doesn't that sound like a lesser deity to you? What's so interesting is that um, that is what many would think today. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot, man, there's a lot of reasons for that that are super sad even. <laughs> but but, uh, but think about 
what the uh, Pharisees wanted to do when Jesus told them that he was the son. Mm. What are we told? It says that they wanted to kill him because in calling himself the son of God, he made himself equal to God. Mm. Yeah. Right. That's, that's what this term means. Um, so uh, maybe in our modern parlance and, and actually just our modern culture that is, is um, horrible and depraved and sad. <laughs> Uh, like we, we have such a, a limited view. Like we have such a view of like pure autonomy, right? Mm -hmm. A son is in no way connected to his father. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about God, the son, we're not talking about Jesus being distinct from uh, the father in any way. And you heard that in what he says. Um, what does he say? He says, I and the father are one. Right. Right. Like that's, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Um, that's how he speaks of his sonship. And so, um, you know, it would do us well actually to, to understand sonship through, uh, first through what Jesus himself said. So if, if claiming to be the son of God is a claim to divinity in the Bible, which obviously it is right. That's obviously the, the reaction, right? That that's why there is a reaction by the Pharisees that you've already pointed out. Why is it? What makes it uh what makes that claim what makes it that way? What is the what is the thing the the being a son the son means that is like this is this is undeniable. This is a claim. This is the highest kind of claim of divinity he could make. Yeah, well I mean so, you know, I mean like I said he you know he he equates, you know, um the father and the son uh, but uh, the the uh, uh, reality that we have from from uh, scriptures that you know Jesus being the the eternal uh, Word, um, He is the uh, the way that God reveals Himself um, to humanity. Right? He is He is um, as Colossians one says He is the the very image of the invisible God. Um, so he is God uh, made known. Um, he is God made known. But also, you know, when we think of the Father and the Son, um, we think uh, maybe of, we think of uh, priority in a way that's maybe a little bit askew, right? Because we think of, of natural generation. Um, but when we're talking about the Father and the Son, uh, as far as uh, as far as divinity, um, we're re referring to or thinking of, or we should be thinking of what is an, an a kind of eternal generation, right? An, an eternal fatherhood, an eternal sonship, um, and uh, just to know. And I, I may be getting off track a little bit, but um, we know the father because we know the son. Yeah. Um, you know the the very fact uh, that there is the son of God is what tells us that there is the father, right? Um, that he, he is the fullest revelation of the father. Um, I thought about that this is past week thinking about the fatherhood of God. And if you read throughout the old Testament, you, 
you know, the idea that God is a father shows up, um, but but never is, um, I, sh- I don't know if I should say never. I I can't think of a time when God is addressed as father mm. in the direct way that you find from Christ um, and after him in his disciples and in us as he taught us, you know, to, to pray like he did. Yeah. Um, and I was struck by that, the reality that Jesus is the fullest revelation of God, right? He is the fullest revelation of the Father. How, how do we know that God, that there is God the Father? Uh, because of the revelation of the Son. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I was maybe getting a little bit off track there, but um, no, I think it's good. It's been on I, my mind. I think the like, again, I think the most basic answer for anyone is, it's again, it's this question of, it's always just asking the question of like, when you come to these things, then, okay, so if he claims to be the son, that is a divine claim. Well, then what is the answer? The answer is, what does the, what do a father and son share? What do you and your son share? What does any son and any father share, right? You share a nature, right? I produce a klein human boy yes you produce you you and generate you right so um, yeah now obviously human generation you know it would be foolish to say that um you know human generation and divine generation can be equated or is yes. the same or is temporal or whatever yep and can get dangerous right like exactly. that's but but what you want to focus in your mind is a what is the part of the analogy part of the thing that the human concept shares with the divine one and it's the nature concept yeah again this is jesus saying i and the father are one if you've seen me you've seen the father there they share the same nature right they they share the same essence they are one yeah and so again it's this it is this thing because it's this it's this thing that people struggle with in the gospels because Jesus doesn't just claim to be divine he he claims to be completely divine that is why they accuse him of blasphemy but he also acts as divine in a very like distinct and specific way right the fact that he obeys the father that he wants to constantly relate to the father that all of these things um, now, again, a number of these things deal with his role as having been united to a human nature, his role as the Messiah. But he's acting not just like God, but like the son of God. He's acting like he has a relationship with God yeah. is what I'm getting at. And that that is a distinct kind of divinity. Again, one hmm. this is Jesus's fundamental identity. This is what divides Jesus from every other claim to the divine that's ever existed. Because nobody else acts as, proves to be, and relates as a son of God. And obviously, this is why Paul's big hope for you in every single epistle is this. In Christ, do you want to relate to God? Do you want to know God? Well, the only place we have to start from is in Christ. That's the only place we can begin. And this is Jesus's identity. And again, we could, we could go on, uh, you know, there are a million, there are so many implications of this 
um, for who Jesus is, Trinitarian theology, and the like in places where we go wrong. But we're running out of time. <laughs> move on to our Lord. Our Lord. Pastor Michael is is the uh, old Apostles' Creed here teaching lordship salvation? <laughs> is that what's happening here? Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, what it's teaching is that um, Jesus Christ um, has become the Lord. Um, that in his, in his, um, through his obedience to the Father, he has now been uh, given a name that is higher than than any name um, that is uh, in heaven above, or that is in the earth below, or that is in the waters under the earth. That uh, he he has been given a position. Mm. Um, of authority and power um, higher than and greater than any other. This is why Jesus says at the time of his ascension to the apostles, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, we're told, I was, I was just going to pull it up so I don't, I know I already quoted um, some of it, but um, in uh, Philippians where we're, you know, told about, you know, Christ humbling himself uh, even even to uh, death on a cross. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, that language of exalted. Uh, you know, he's highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Um, so what what it's speaking about is Christ's position. If we if we want to say that you know in a sense we have Jesus Christ speaking of the humanity uh, of of Jesus, and when we talk about the Son, we're referring to His divinity in a particular way. You could say that that uh, you know in a way maybe that this is you know something of His position, the position that He's been given as the God Man, um, as the the last Adam. Um, as the representative of the covenant head of a new humanity, he has ascended into the heavenly realm above all else where he has been seated on a throne, um, a throne of rule and power and authority um, from which he rules. He is now the king of kings and lord of lords. That's right. Yeah, let me go back again to our uh, our friends in the um in the oh why did i lose it in the heidelberg catechism here because i think again it's it's a wonderful place why do you call him our lord because not with gold or silver but with his precious blood he has set us free from sin and the tyranny of the devil and has bought us body and soul to be his very own hmm. right so they they focus on exactly what you did that this is the a title of his authority of his possession that that is what we're declaring. Now, I will say I do think it is a bit of a lordship salvation that it sounds like if you like if you are saved by the son of God, you are his possession. Yep. Right. That he is your final authority, um, regardless of. of yeah. And I should are. say when I say no, I, I just know that lordship salvation stuff got weird. Like it just got weird. I, you know, I've just read where like some of it got strange. Um, but the basic idea that this is saying you have been bought with a price, um, you are not your own, uh, you belong to another, and that you know the the one who is truly 
um, saved has been set apart for um, the honor of Christ and that you have an obligation to him um, is 100% true. And if you live a lawless life, um, then you do not have Christ as your Lord, right? <laughs> like that's, I have no problem agreeing up to that point. I just know that it got a little funky well, you know, at and, some point. And the two care, the two categories of it, it's a Baptist problem, but. Right, exactly. Um, but yes, I also think um, that many times when Jesus is called Lord um, in the New Testament, perhaps beyond the creed, and it perhaps answers why can I make the claim Jesus is my authority? He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. Why can I say unquestioned authority belongs to Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ is Yahweh. I think many times, especially as we speak English, the implication that Jesus is Lord is meant to lead us to the fact that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Jesus yes. is the only God. He shares everything that makes the father lord everything that makes him um the final authority and that um and because if there was another lord if there was a higher lord if there was a if there was jesus was a lord and there was yahweh we wouldn't be able to speak this way but we can't and we can declare him to be our lord in this sense now as we close pastor michael I don't know. Sometimes I wonder, again, as I've mentioned, this is not the kind of thing I came in on hot in to the young, restless and reformed. This was not what was uh, uh, interesting or, or, you know, enlivening. Right. I just wonder, Pastor Michael, if how would you respond if if you were I'm sure you didn't hear this, but if you were preaching through this, perhaps, or you're walking through these parts of the faith. And someone said, man, when are we going to get to the reformed stuff? Mm. When are we going to get to the, like, the, uh, you know, the, the, the real, the stuff the the real reformed guy stuff, of course, we probably mean the five points of Calvinism, right? We might, you know, we oftentimes we're interested, you know, in those kinds of things. How would you, mm. how would you answer? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, one way. I would do that is, you know, okay, so you believe in monergism. Um, right. You know, you believe that it is God alone who saves. Um, who, who is he? How did he do that? Mm. How did he accomplish those things? Um, you know, this is obviously at the core and at the heart of all of it. And, and truly, um, the reason why, uh, for instance, um, predestination or, or things like that are not found in the apostles creed is because they're subsidiary doctrines mm. um, it, it's not actually as important as the humanity the divinity and the lordship of christ it's not like that doesn't that does not matter the same um, as you understanding the reality that god is one and three mm. um, and so that's um that is why this matters so much is because it's so much more fundamental. Yeah. And I think we all know this and we've, you know, we've gotten to this over and over on this podcast. And you see so many ways that this kind of movement that all of us, where all of a sudden Calvinism became very popular, but not the foundation that built John Calvin. 
Right. Right. And Martin Luther and others, right? Like not the, not those things which they held the most firmly. Um, and not to say that those things weren't important. It's just that they, they weren't central, right? Like they weren't, um, like you're saying, they weren't maybe the, the main topic of conversation. And actually, you know, that's not always bad because uh, sometimes these things can, like they, they are the beginning, right? Like they are the, the, the foundation and it's okay to build out and like go deeper in a sense while realizing that as you go deeper into any other um, piece of doctrine, what you're really doing is going deeper into Christ to mm -hmm. this Christ uh, and, and to, to disconnect them or, or to say, well, we have to leave behind Christ um, to get to the real stuff, the real meat. Well, that's called an idol and mm -hmm. you have walked away from the faith at that point. And do you know what I think the idol is? You, you can correct me if I'm wrong. In, and again, I'm speaking of in the reformed world, obviously there's idols everywhere. So, uh, don't be offended, friends, because this isn't the only idol that exists. I think the idol is a form of intellectualism. Yeah. Because, man, there, right, there is a kind of person that wants Christianity to be a never-ending Ligonier conference or a never-ending discussion. Um, debate on classical theism, or you yeah. know, again, or the never-ending podcast, a never-ending podcast. Yeah. Um, this podcast, you know, is different, but <laughs> anyway, right, <laughs> right, but this, and this is also will be the, the like if there's a thing that could be bring the doom to reformed, the reformed churches, it would be this. Because there are plenty of people that cannot relate to that. But but you know what everyone can relate to? They can all relate to because they must, because they are created being. And if they want to know God, they must relate to Jesus Christ. And even in the question we read earlier, when we talked about what does it mean that I'm a Christian? Yes, of course, the reason many of us were attracted to Reformed theology is a good thing. We found an intellectually satisfying presentation of the faith and bible that's good we were commanded to love the lord with all our minds that's good but we were also commanded to confess his name yeah we were commanded to present himself as a living sacrifice of thanks and to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil so it is equally fine to to present christ in practical ways and in um you know, in terms of worship, right, in terms of these other things that perhaps aren't going to be the dive into providence or Calvinism or any of these things, as long as they're focused on Jesus and who he is and what he's come to do to save us. Pastor Michael, we're back into the Apostles' Creed here on Restless. Are you happy we're here? How are, how are we, <laughs> we got a long way to go. There's going to be a lot more of these. It could be three years at this rate before we're done, uh, but there will be more. That's right. Well, make sure uh, Pastor Michael mentioned the Patreon. You can go download us discussing um, these certain kinds of Presbyterian preaching sins that may or may not exist there right now. Um, loads and loads of stuff there. 
$3 a month, everybody. Thank you for downloading the show. We will be back with new restless content next week. All right, bye.